Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 21, Atacragus. Apologies for the brief interruption. I've been in the process of finishing up school and moving again. In the future, hopefully, we will be on a regular schedule of an episode every two weeks. Last time, we discussed how Rome and Carthage, the two preeminent powers of the Western Mediterranean following the Pyrrhic War, drifted into conflict due to a local dispute with the Mamertines of Sicily. With the breakdown of their recent alliance, Rome and Carthage now marshaled their forces for a colossal confrontation in Sicily. Today, we will examine the first major clashes between their two forces in southern Sicily and how these prompted Rome to take a fateful step that would transform the whole nature of the war. Following their failure to prevent the Romans from crossing into Sicily and the ignoble retreat from Messana, the Carthaginians regrouped in North Africa. Despite their poor showing in initial skirmishes, they remained optimistic about the coming conflict. By now, they were all too familiar with waging wars in the Sicilian countryside thanks to unruly Syracuse and we could hardly blame them if they thought that, similar to their previous campaigns, the land war in Syracuse would likely prove bloody yet indecisive. As a maritime power, as long as the Carthaginian fleet maintained control of the Mediterranean, she could afford to continue a land war in Sicily almost indefinitely, since her merchants could roam the sea at will, swelling the city with wealth from her trade empire. With a continual flow of gold and silver from overseas, Carthage would always have a ready supply of eager mercenaries willing to serve for the Carthaginian coin. Besides, Rome's achievements, though impressive, had been mostly contained to the Italian peninsula and could not compare to an empire which by now was over five centuries old. The Carthaginians likely thought that they could bring significantly more resources to bear on the coming conflict than their Italian rivals as well. Bolstered by such thoughts, Carthage hired a mercenary army composed of Gauls, Iberians, and Ligurians, fierce tribesmen from Liguria, a region in northwestern Italy, which, by the way, you can see on the map using the link in the description. In 263 BC, the Carthaginians shipped an army of 50,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 60 war elephants to Sicily to combat the Romans. Once again, we see Pyrrhus' legacy and influence on the Punic Wars. As we remember, Pyrrhus was the first to use war elephants in the western Mediterranean against both the Romans and the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians quickly took a fancy to this new military asset. Although they had doubtless been familiar with elephants for a long time, since a breed of elephants inhabited the forests and mountainous regions of North Africa, they didn't think to use them in warfare until after contact with Pyrrhus's war beasts in the Pyrrhic War. Today, there is a lively academic debate about where the Carthaginians got their elephants from which I know you will find as riveting as I do. The elephants which inhabited the Atlas Mountains surrounding Carthage 
were known as the North African elephant, which is a subspecies of the more famous African bush elephant, which we often see nowadays in nature documentaries. This North African variant was smaller than the African bush elephant, measuring just over 8 feet in height at the shoulder, as compared to 11 to 13 feet for the African bush elephant. It was likely similar to the modern African forest elephant, which measures approximately 8 feet in height. Notably, the African bush elephant has never really been employed in warfare, most likely due to its untamable nature. Scholars debate whether or not the Carthaginians used this North African elephant for their war elephants, or whether they imported the larger Indian elephants and Syrian elephants, a subspecies of Asian elephants, which typically measured over 10 feet in height and were preferred by ancient armies due to their larger size and fearless nature. Critics of the North African elephant theory cite the fact that the animals seem to have been more difficult to tame and were weaker than their Indian counterparts, and thus could not bear the weight of the archer towers on their backs. However, ancient records indicate that these smaller elephants did indeed carry turrets and were used in warfare, giving strong circumstantial evidence that Carthage may have used the North African elephant in their armies. Unfortunately, the North African elephant went extinct around 100 AD, most likely due to overexploitation stemming in part from the demand for elephants for the games in the Roman Colosseum. For what it's worth, in my own humble opinion, I think it's likely that the Carthaginians employed both North African elephants and African forest elephants, as well as a selection of Indian elephants which they imported from the east. All we know for certain is that when the Carthaginians shipped off their expeditionary force to Sicily in 263 BC, a strong corps of elephants accompanied their armies for the first time. Now that we are up to date on our ancient elephant subspecies, we will quickly review the rest of the Carthaginian army. As we have seen previously, the Carthaginian military was primarily composed of mercenaries and foreign adventurers, in contrast to the Roman model of citizen service. Most Carthaginian citizens were exempt from service, save in emergencies, such as Agathocles' invasion of Africa, and few Carthaginians served regularly in the armies, save as generals or officers. Most of the frontline troops of the Carthaginian armies were Libby Phoenicians from her colonies, Libyans, Numidians, Balearics, and Garamatines from her North African tributaries, or mercenary Gauls, Iberians, Latins, Ligurians, and Etruscans from Spain, Gaul, and Italy. These men typically fought using their native equipment, save for certain corps who were equipped for special service. In contrast to their land forces, the Carthaginian navy seems to have been manned primarily by Carthaginian citizens of the lower classes, who took pride in serving in the arm that made their civilization so prosperous and secure for so long. The generals were elected by popular vote and existed as a separate office from the civil government. When on campaign, they nearly had the powers of an absolute monarch able to direct the course of the war 
and even form treaties with foreign allies or enemies. However, as we have seen, this nearly unlimited power in the field was checked by a rigorous and harsh review at the end of the war by the Tribunal of 104, who, similar to the Greek oligarchs, mistrusted exemplary and popular commanders for the threat they posed to the state. Often, this tribunal unjustly convicted many of their ablest generals to die shamefully in a public execution. This ever-present threat of disgrace and execution could help explain the indecisiveness of Carthaginian commanders such as Hanno, the general who now led the Carthaginian expeditionary force. Upon leaving North Africa, the Carthaginians sailed for the Greek city of Acragas, called Agrigentum in Latin, in southern Sicily, which, due to its strategic location and proximity to Roman territory, served as a perfect headquarters for attacking eastern Sicily. Aware of the strategic importance of Acragas, the Romans had already been besieging the city for five months with an army of 40,000 men, composed of a corps of four Roman legions containing 4,200 to 6,000 infantry plus 300 cavalry each, with the remainder of the army being made up of allied Italian contingents of 4,000 to 5,000 infantry and 900 cavalry apiece. Hanno's mission was to relieve the city by driving off the Romans. Landing at Lilibaeum, Hanno marched to Acragas. Upon arrival, he managed to severely defeat a Roman cavalry detachment and capture a Roman supply base. The loss of this supply base impeded the flow of provisions from Syracuse to the Roman camp, presenting the Romans with a very real possibility of starvation. Several times, the Roman consuls considered abandoning the siege due to their rapidly dwindling supplies. But Hiero, the king of Syracuse, redoubled his efforts to provide his Roman allies with food and managed to motivate them to continue the siege. Despite this, in the words of Polybius, the Romans now found themselves to be both the besiegers and the besieged with the arrival of the Carthaginian relief force under Hanno. The Romans built lines of contravallation, a series of trenches and fortifications around their camps, to shield themselves from the Carthaginians in the city, as well as the newly arrived Carthaginian army. While disease and food shortages began to plague the Roman army, Hanno contented himself with camping near the Roman lines and waiting to see what would happen. Impatient at his colleague's delay, the Carthaginian garrison commander, Hannibal, no, not that Hannibal, sent increasingly desperate messages to Hanno, saying that the city was also starving and his men were deserting to the Romans in droves. As a fun side fact, historians believe that Hannibal was Hanno's father, which must have added a certain level of awkwardness to this already tense situation. After two months of waiting, Hanno finally decided to march out to the Roman camp. The Roman commanders accepted the challenge and decided to hazard everything on a full-scale battle. Hanno placed his mercenary troops in two lines, with his elephants in between the first and second lines. 
Whether or not this is due to his lack of faith in the quality of his troops is uncertain, but it proved disastrous in the end. The Romans likely advanced in their famous triplex aces formation, with each unit spaced evenly in a checkerboard pattern. We will cover the Roman army tactics and formations in depth in a future episode. For now, Polybius states that after a long and drawn-out fight, the Romans drove the Carthaginian mercenaries backwards onto the elephants. As the retreating men collided with the beasts, the elephants panicked and trampled their own men, throwing the Carthaginian army into utter confusion. The few who managed to avoid being crushed by the elephants or cut down by Roman swords fled to the nearby city of Heraclea. Later, when he was recalled to Carthage, Hanno narrowly avoided being crucified for his failure to relieve the city. Instead, the Carthaginians merely stripped him of his civic rights and fined him 6,000 gold pieces. Back in Acragas, Hanno's father Hannibal nearly despaired when he saw Hanno and his men driven off in defeat by the Romans. However, fate afforded him an opportunity to escape to fight another day. When night fell after the battle, the Romans, emboldened by success and exhausted by the day's fighting, kept a very slack watch over the city. Under the cover of darkness, Hannibal and his men filled a portion of the Roman trenches with sacks filled with straw, and thus were able to cross the fortifications with the remainder of the garrison, leaving the citizens of Acragas to their fate. When the Romans discovered that the Carthaginians had left, they stormed the city and sacked it, transporting an immense amount of booty to Rome and selling the 25,000 citizens into slavery. As we saw last time, the First Punic War began more due to an unwillingness to negotiate than due to any conscious decision of the Romans or Carthaginians to go to war. Thus, it is no surprise that neither party seems to have known at the outset of the war what exactly their ultimate objective was. Polybius viewed the fall of Acragas as a turning point in the war the moment the Romans realized the opportunity before them. When news of the Battle of Acragas arrived in Rome, the Roman Senate felt that it was not enough that they had successfully aided the Mamertines and profited from seizing Acragas. Now, Rome felt she must wrest control of Sicily from Carthage, driving the Carthaginians from their ancient holdings in western Sicily. Not only would this profit the Roman interests greatly, it was also in their minds the only conceivable way of securing their southern border. As long as the barbarian Carthaginians remained in Sicily, just a few days' sail from Roman land, Italy would always be threatened. Only when Sicily was in Roman hands would southern Italy be safe. With this new goal of an all-out conquest of Sicily in mind, the Romans methodically began to plan out their next steps in the campaign. Although the land war in Sicily was progressing smoothly enough, their lack of a naval presence was proving a decided disadvantage. Following the Roman victory at Acragas, numerous inland cities in Sicily declared for the Roman cause. However, 
Most of the coastal cities remained firmly in the Carthaginian camp, ever fearful that the powerful Carthaginian navy could appear off their shores at any moment. To make matters worse, the Carthaginian fleet launched raids along the Italian coast from their bases in Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica, while the Romans were unable to retaliate by attacking North Africa. To quote Polybius, As long as the Carthaginians had undisputed control of the sea, the outcome of the war hung in the balance. The scales of war were constantly tipping one way or the other, with increasingly larger fluctuations. With the Carthaginians roaming the seas at will, the Roman expeditionary force in Sicily was always in danger of being cut off from Italy. And should a political shift in Syracuse cause the city to again change its allegiance and ally with Carthage, the Roman army was in distinct danger of being starved out on the island. Further, as we have said before, the Carthaginians were well aware that they could continue to pour men and materials into Sicily indefinitely and prolong a relatively indecisive land war, for as long as gold continued to come overseas, mercenaries would always be found and sent to the front lines. Faced with the threat of such a war of attrition, Rome, the dominant land power in Italy, decided that she would have to build a fleet to challenge Carthage on the wine-dark seas. Next time, we will see how the land-based Romans zealously took to the seas by initiating an ingenious shipbuilding campaign which would lead to the largest naval battle history would ever see. Before I go, I want to remind you to make sure to follow The Layman's Historian on Facebook and at my new Twitter page, at Layman Historian. Also, please consider writing a review of the podcast on iTunes and sharing it with your friends who like history. It really helps the podcast grow. Until next time, take care and read more history. Mm-hmm.